And before we jump into our text today, just, um, just one thing to reiterate. We last week heard from Terry Fisher uh, as we closed out our month of prayer and awareness for mercy and justice issues. Terry shared about um, how, to re- how we could respond to the refugee crisis, the Syrian refugee crisis. I just want to bring your minds kind of back to that. Um, I know a lot's happened in that week and a lot was going on last Sunday that may have just kind of been in one ear and out the other. Um, there was a, an insert in the bulletin last week that detailed some uh, future opportunities coming up even this week, Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at West Shore. There's an opportunity to learn more about how we can get involved in that. Um, so I just wanted to jog your memory about that because also what I'm talking about today from the Gospel of Matthew ties in with some of that. Um, so if you have Bibles... Go ahead and make your way to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. And we're going to be in verses 25 through 34, so the very end of of chapter 6. And we're talking today about anxiety. And I joked last week that there's something comedic about uh, God and His timing when He has you prepare a sermon about anxiety and then leads you into a week that's full of anxiety uh, and full of things to cause anxiety. So um, I really feel like I've got better tested material and insight for you, uh, even in this last week, to offer out of that. But many of us come in right now, even this morning, with anxiety. We come in with anxiety. And I don't know what it is for you that might be causing anxiety. It might be your job. It might be your lack of a job. It might be a relationship that you're in that you're not thrilled with how it's going or, or it's broken down in some way. It might be your lack of a relationship. It might be the unknowns of what's going to happen today or this week or this month or this year. I know in, in mourning together, in mourning Joy's death this week, we've certainly been reminded about how, how fragile life can be, how, how brief life can be, and so perhaps that for you is creating anxiety. So you're going to hear Jesus in this passage tell you to not be anxious. And and as you hear him say that, there are really, I think, two ways that you can hear that and that you can understand that. One is to hear it kind of as a slap on the wrist. Jesus saying, you know, "Don't, don't be anxious. Stop it. Stop being anxious. And if we hear it that way, it's almost certainly going to propel us into a downward spiral of anxiety. Where we have anxiety about the fact that we have anxiety, and we're not supposed to have anxiety, but we have anxiety anyway, so why am I anxious? And it just propels this downward spiral. So instead of that, the way that I'm praying, and have been praying that, that we would hear this this morning, is that these are the kind words of our God and our King, Jesus. And he's inviting us to consider in these words who our Father in Heaven is, and why, because of who He is, we need not be anxious. We need not be troubled So it's with those ears that I hope you hear this, but follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. 
Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. We pray for us. God, thank you for your word to us this morning. And we do pray, and I pray that we would hear it not as the slap on the wrist from Jesus. We, we, we see very clearly from his words that we're not supposed to be anxious and we don't need to be anxious. But I pray you would help us to really perceive why we don't have to be anxious. And that that would be grounded in your nature and your care for your creation and most specifically your care for us. So lead us into that. Um, would you do just deep work in our hearts this morning, wherever we're experiencing anxiety, would your word minister to us right there. Let me pray that in your name. Amen. So as we uh, walk through that month that we just finished last week of, of prayer and awareness for different mercy and justice issues, I hope that, that we were able to see the amount of overlap that there is between ministries of mercy and the things that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not always obvious how those two things are connected. Because pursuits of mercy and justice really tend to focus on the external outworking of our faith. We're called to be a people who live and speak and serve as the very presence of Jesus in our neighborhoods. That there's a very external aspect to that. And Jesus teaches not so much about the external outworking of our faith in the Sermon on the Mount, but really the inward working of our faith, these matters of the heart. So here's the connection in this passage in Matthew 6. It's that anxiety has everything to do with faith. Anxiety is really about our functional belief or our functional disbelief in the nature and character of God. And when I say those phrases, this is what I mean. Most of us in the room, if we come in and we're Christians especially, we would say, yeah, we believe God, in, in God, and we believe He is good, and we believe we can trust Him. We check the box. But there's a functional level of like, in the moment, do we actually believe those things to be true? and all the implications of that being true? Or do we not believe it in, in those moments? Well, that same functional belief or disbelief doesn't just affect our anxiety about God's provision for us. It also affects our desire and our ability to be merciful toward others. Anxiety is the enemy of compassion. Anxiety is the enemy of generosity. It's the enemy of being a truly merciful presence in the world. And so at the end of the day, our pursuit of mercy and justice in the world is likewise, at, at its root cause, an issue of belief or unbelief. Now hopefully that will be more and more clear as we make our way through this passage, and we're just going to look at it in two parts. We're going to talk first about the unbelief of anxiety, and then we'll talk about the belief of seeking God's kingdom. So first, the unbelief of anxiety. In the passage uh, just prior to this one that we read today, Jesus presents his disciples with some choices, with some options. 
It says, which treasure will you choose? Will you choose the perishable treasure that's on earth? Or will you choose this imperishable treasure that's in heaven? And will light or will darkness characterize your sight? The way you see things, the way you perceive things in the world. Will you serve God or will you serve money? And our anxiety or our lack thereof really is going to be based on our choice between these treasures and these sites and these masters. So Jesus begins this passage by saying, therefore, meaning in light of choosing God as your treasure, choosing God as your site, choosing God as your master, therefore, don't be anxious about your life. That's a really important difference about how Christians think about being free from anxiety and how a humanistic, optimistic society thinks about being free from anxiety. Jesus says here, with your treasure in heaven, with light in your eyes, with God as your master, you need not be anxious about important matters in this life. See, he's talking not about the luxuries of life or things we want. He's talking about truly the necessities of life, food, water, and clothing. A humanistic, optimistic society deals with anxiety in a much more shallow way than Jesus does here. It's kind of like Bobby McFerrin singing his famous song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, which I think is like 90% of the lyrics of that whole song, (laughs) unless you count the whistling and the woo-hoos that go in there along with it. That's the, that's, that I think characterizes, that's the shallow answer to have, for how to be free of anxiety. Just don't worry about it. Just be happy. But real tragedy and real sorrow expose immediately how shallow that response is. We're not satisfied with that. Not when real tragedy and real sorrow hits. There is something about anxiety that really has to do with common sense. And Jesus affirms that here. He says that common sense tells us that anxiety really is is futile. We can't add any span to our lives by our anxiety. We don't change that. Today, he says at the end, today has enough trouble of its own, so we deal with today, today, and we deal with tomorrow, tomorrow. There's a lot of common sense in that. It's completely true. But that by itself isn't deep enough to get at the root of why we are anxious in the first place. And at some point, we're going to get tired of whistling along and just saying, don't worry, be happy. And we're going to want to address why we have anxiety in the first place. So what's the deeper solution? Jesus says, we look to the character and the work of God. Look to the character of God. Look to the work of God. And he uses these two examples from nature. He talks about birds and he talks about flowers. The birds of the air, they don't plant. uh, They don't harvest. They don't store their food. And yet, God provides for them. God feeds them. The flowers are even more passive than that. They just sit there. The birds at least have to work for it a little bit. The flowers don't. They just sit there. They neither toil nor spin, and yet they grow, and they are clothed even more radiantly than Solomon, who's the richest king in the history of the people of Israel. He's known for his luxury and his opulence. And God says the flowers are clothed better than than him. There are a couple points that Jesus is making here as as he draws in these examples from nature. For one, he's pointing out the worth of human beings. He says about the birds, are you not of more value than they? And he says about the grass, if God clothes the grass like this, grass which is here today and used tomorrow for kindling for the fire, will he not clothe you? 
And we've talked about this uh, a bunch, actually, during this month of, of talking about mercy and, and justice issues. But the reason, our foundation for treating people well and for seeking the good of other people is this core truth that people are created in the image of God. And that therefore people have this inherent worth and dignity and value above and beyond the rest of God's creation. So God creates everything. He values everything. He cares for everything. But people are more valuable than plants and animals. That's not a given in our culture and in our society today. We tend to equate all of those things together. But I think if we love dogs, or if we love trees, as great as that is, if we love them more than we love people, our priorities are not aligned with the way that God bestows worth and value on the different aspects of his creation. You have more value and worth, Jesus says. So if God is not just adequately, but really abundantly providing for the less valuable aspects of what he's created, will he not also do more for you, the more valuable parts? And likewise, if God has already done this work to create you in the first place, and to give you a life and a body in the first place, will he not see to it that the life and body he has given you will have what they need to survive, will have the food, will have the water, will have the clothing? And this line of thought crescendos to the end of verse 30, where he says, O you of little faith. And that's the same line that he used in other situations with his disciples. He used that line when they're in a boat and a storm comes up and their boat is beginning to sink and they're afraid that they're going to die. He says, O you of little faith. And he uses those words with Peter. When Peter is invited to step out of the boat and to walk on water to Jesus, and he starts to uh, disbelieve, and he starts to sink, Jesus says, Oh, you have little faith. And here's what it means when Jesus says that here in relation to anxiety. It means that anxiety is rooted in unbelief. It's rooted in unbelief. We're anxious because we don't really trust that God values us the way he says he does. We're, We're anxious because we don't really trust that God will provide for us the way that he has promised to. And we forget that as the one who has created us, the one who sustains breath in our lungs, God knows more than anyone, he knows more than we ourselves do, that we need these things to survive. So we are people of little faith when we experience anxiety. right? Anxiety is really just the symptom, the illness, the sickness deeper than that is is unbelief. In contrast to the unbelief of anxiety then, Jesus talks about the belief of seeking God's kingdom. That's the second thing we're going to talk about today. Jesus says here, necessary as those things are, right? these aren't the luxuries, these aren't the, the excesses in life, necessary as food and water and clothing are, don't run after those things. In other words, the most important thing in this world, in this life, is not that our physiological needs are met. It says life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. And he says instead that the most important thing in the world is that God reigns. That's what he says when he's saying, seek first the kingdom of God. The most important thing in the world is that God reigns. He's preeminent. His rule, his reign over everything is Preeminent. Everything exists in the first place because of him. 
And so Jesus says, seek him. Seek him. Align your lives with the rule and the reign of God. Because if you align your, yourselves with that, you then have aligned yourselves with the only one who sustains the rest of it. So don't take care of these other things first. I studied marketing in college. There's something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. It has great applications that make a lot of sense, but it starts with you make sure all of your physiological needs are met and then kind of works its way up to self-actualization. And that's the way we tend to approach everything, including religion and faith. But this, like, throws that out the window completely and reverses it, flips the pyramid over, you know? And not even that pyramid's not even the right framework to use there exactly. But it says it's backward to seek your physiological needs first. Instead, seek the one who rules and reigns over it all. Because in line with his rule and reign, he is promised to be the one who cares for and provides for you. Now that's a response rooted in belief. Because in order to, to pursue that, we actually have to believe that God and his kingdom are more important, more preeminent than everything else. We actually have to believe that God is good. And we actually have to believe that God is able to do these things, that he's able to provide these things for human beings. And so the question becomes, does he? Does he provide these things? Many of us, from our socioeconomic status, our educational backgrounds, most of us can probably look at that and say, yeah, he does. I, I'm provided for pretty well in this life. Probably many of us in abundance were provided for. But, all of us have times in our lives where we don't believe this. And maybe for some of us, that's right now. Maybe today you don't feel provided for. You don't feel cared for. Or maybe you do feel cared for, but then you look at what's happening in the world around you, and you wonder, how can I reconcile what Jesus teaches here about God's care for people when a friend dies this week? Or how do we reconcile that with these kind of global, huge, systemic issues like the millions of hungry and homeless people that live in our nation and in our world? Or the millions of people that are in poverty? How do we reconcile this with the Syrian refugee crisis like you heard Terry speak about last week? Well, there aren't easy and simplistic answers to those questions. So if you were expecting for me to like satisfactorily answer those in the next couple minutes, I'm going to disappoint you tremendously. But I want to encourage you, when you ask those questions, you are getting to the real rubber-meets-the-road aspects of the Christian faith. Ask those questions and wrestle with those questions, particularly when they come from your own experience. And it's not just theoretical debate about who is God. And Wrestle with that through your own experience, because that's really where the rubber meets the road with functional belief or functional disbelief. And something particularly related to these systemic, bigger picture, kind of global issues that I want to talk about a little bit today, is that if you take this text and you put it side by side with another text in Matthew's Gospel, then some of the answer begins to come into focus here. So Matthew 25, which maybe we'll get to during our time in Matthew, but doubtful because Easter's coming incredibly quickly this year. Um, Matthew 25 is this picture of Jesus separating his followers from those who have rejected him. And the main criteria that he goes through in that passage is that those who belong to Jesus are those who have served the least of these. Or the people who society at large has kind of rejected and devalued, kind of distanced themselves from. 
How specifically do the people of God serve the least of these? Well, Jesus mentions in Matthew 25, by giving them food when they're hungry, by giving them something to drink when they're thirsty, by welcoming them when they are a stranger, by clothing them when they were naked, by visiting them when they're sick, by visiting them when they're in prison. And if you put that passage side by side with what Jesus says here about anxiety in Matthew 6, there are three things that explicitly connect food and water and clothing. And the point there is that Jesus' followers are to provide the very things that God has provided for them. So as God provides for us, he also makes us the means of his provision for others. If God cares for us and and the rest of humanity the way that Jesus describes here in Matthew 6, why are so many people hungry and naked in the world? I think the scholar John Stott says it really well when he says this. The most basic cause of hunger is not inadequate divine provision. It's not that God hasn't provided. But inequitable human distribution. The fact that God feeds and clothes his children does not exempt us from the responsibility of being the agents through whom he does it. And this, I think, is why anxiety and unbelief are root issues, not only as we think about God's provision for us, but as we understand our role in the lives of others and think about ministries of mercy. If we ever forget how dependent we are on the provision of God for us, if we establish for ourselves a life in which functionally we we don't have to really believe in God, then we've created really an alternate universe in which what we have, we have solely because we are smarter and better and more capable than those who do not have. And if we've provided for ourselves like that, if that's our mentality, and if our future provision is up to us and not up to the ongoing loving care and provision of God, then we will no doubt turn around and we will be tight-fisted and lack compassion and lack generosity toward others. And the best that I can perceive this, I think there's a lot of this underneath the reactions that that I've heard in our culture, both from Christians and from non-Christians, about the prospect of caring for Syrian refugees. We're anxious. We're people who experience anxiety. So how are we going to guarantee our security if we're going to do something like open up our borders to Syrian refugees? And that's a good question. It's an understandable question. has a lot of components of wisdom in that question. But I also would throw out there for you to consider, it's a fundamentally flawed question. Because we never guarantee our own security. We never even guarantee our own food and our own water and our own clothing. If we live our lives thinking that that's the case, we believe a myth. And and the cultural moment in which we live and the time and place in which you and I were born really affords us that it's possible to believe that myth. That we're able to provide for ourselves because we've never known anything but that. But in, in reality, we never guarantee our security. We are in the hands of God. And the hungry and the homeless and the impoverished in the world are in the hands of God. The Syrian refugees are in the hands of God. And then one of the most common and primary means of God's provision for those who have not is through those who have. Those are the pieces I think we need to to put out there and really wrestle with in something like this. There's an author and scholar named Russell Moore. He wrote a really good article in the Washington Post back in November about the refugee crisis. And the title itself is really long, but it's great. 
The title of the article is called Stop Pitting Security and Compassion Against Each Other in the Syrian Refugee Crisis. Okay, so that's a lot of words in a title, but it's spot on. It's spot on. The way we frame this conversation so often is we pit these two things against one another. It's as if it's an either-or choice. And in it, Russell Moore says this. He says, While this kind of complicated geopolitical situation requires prudence, it also requires virtue. We should debate what it would take to ensure adequate vetting of refugees, but we should not allow ourselves to engage in the kind of rhetoric we've heard in recent days. It is one thing to have disagreement about whether the vetting process is adequate. It's quite another to seek to permanently turn our backs on Syrian refugees altogether. So I I would put it to you this way. There's no way that we can take Jesus' call here to seek his kingdom first, both for our own provision and then what that means for us as a means of his provision to others. There's no way we can take that call to seek his kingdom and then categorically reject a compassionate, uh, a generous, really even a risky, in some way, response toward refugees, toward marginalized people in the world. And if we pit, as Russell Moore cautions us against, if we pit security and compassion against each other, and if security wins, then guaranteed that is because there's fear and anxiety underneath that. And in light of what Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, underneath that fear, underneath that anxiety, is unbelief. And I share that with you this morning, not as theory, right? This is not theoretical. This is exactly what goes on in my own heart and mind when I think about not just a Syrian refugee crisis, but pouring myself out, my time and my energy and my efforts for the good of other people. And I work in vocational ministry like 50 hours a week and sometimes more, like isn't that enough? Like, do, do I have to keep doing more beyond that? Like, can't I have a little bit of focus just on myself and, and my things? And can't it be about me and my life and my family? I know that many of us, maybe apart from the vocational ministry side of that, that's where we wrestle. That's where we wrestle in these things. And for those of us who, who sit in this room this morning, the majority of us, the vast majority of us, Um, That is where we are going to struggle. Rarely are are you and I, people who sit in this room, rarely are you and I the group of people who need to be pulled in the direction of wisdom and protection and prudence when it comes to these things. All of those things are good things. They are affirmed by the Word of God. If you read Proverbs, you will find unending words in Scripture about wisdom and prudence and protection. It is good to pursue those things. But that is not where you and I, us as a group of people, this church is most likely, as a, as a whole, to err. We're people far more likely to err on the other side of that and lack compassion and lack generosity. And I, I want us to see together, as I see in my own heart, that's not the belief of seeking first the kingdom of God. That's the unbelief of anxiety. So to be a people of mercy and justice is about belief and unbelief. I hope that's really clear in this text this morning. And our pursuit of mercy and justice in the world is going to be rooted deeply in our own understanding of the gospel. The more we see ourselves as those who are dependent on the provision of God, the more that we throw ourselves on his loving care, his provision for us with functional belief, then the more freely and the more generously that we will turn around and serve and bless and care for for others. 
about 10 or 12 years ago, I heard an Iranian-American man named Afshin Zayafat speak at a winter conference for a um, campus ministry that I was involved in. Uh, he grew up as a Muslim in Iran, and he hasn't forgotten really the powerful way that God worked in his life to transform him, and he hasn't forgotten really what that means for his own dependence and his dependence really on the provision and the ongoing care of God. And that really came through in an illustration that I heard him share recently, and I wanted to close with, with that this morning. So he speaks about uh, when you fly on Southwest Airlines. I know many of us travel for visiting family or work or vacations, things like that. Uh, if you fly on Southwest Airlines, you pick your own seat. So you, you go online and you... Um, you, depending on what time you check in, you get a number, a boarding group and a number, and then at the airport you line up in that boarding group and number, and then they kind of like, it's like Black Friday, and they like open the doors and everybody kind of runs in, and it's first come, first serve. So, so the people that have gotten there first and checked in first, they always take the window and the aisle seats as close to the front as possible. So by the time that people come in at the end, all that's left are like a, a mass quantity of, of middle seats and no two seats together. It's just all middle seats. So as the story goes, as Afshin was sharing it, there's a man who comes on the flight late with his son. He's in one of the last boarding groups. He comes on late, and he asks someone in the first few rows if they don't mind moving from their aisle seat to one of the other open middle seats so he and his son can sit together. And the early boarder just kind of like gave the stank eye to this guy, just stared him down as if the guy was like, as if the father was like asking him to like chop off his arm and give it to him in that moment. It's like, no way, you know, I bought this ticket with my money and I checked in at the first second I possibly could check in to make sure I was in the first boarding group and I got on the plane first and I got this seat. There is no way that you are going to get this seat from me. But then Afshin asks, how much would this scenario change if the circumstances were different? So what if, for example, you were on this plane, you, were, you had bought a ticket to be on this plane, but the plane was oversold, and for whatever reason, you were the one who got kicked off. But what if that plane was also, let's say, your last chance to get home before some significant life event was going to happen? Family member was getting married, or maybe the birth of your own child, something like that. And someone, hearing your dilemma, decided that they would give up their seat so that you could get on that plane and go home. Okay, now let's say you're sitting there, and this man in the last boarding group walks in with his son, and he says, would you mind if I had your seat so my son and I could sit together? How much more likely would you be, would I be, in that moment, to spring from our chair and offer up our seat? All right, we would probably do it with a smile on our face. Why? Because we're on the plane. Because we got to be on the plane. And so we will gladly give freely of what we have because we know that it's been given to us. And that's exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ is like. It's because of the loving provision of God that we've been created in the first place. And it's because of the loving provision of God that we have food and we have water and we have clothing. And for many of us, just a real abundance beyond that. God cares for you. He cares for us. He has demonstrated that. And because of the merciful compassion of God most clearly demonstrated in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you've been invited into God's kingdom. Right? Through no merit of our own, we get to be on the plane 
right? We get to be in the kingdom of God. And if we would only perceive that, if we would only see that, that would really be the end of our anxiety. Not just about God's provision for us, but about how he uses us as a means of his provision for others. It would be the end of our anxiety that leads to this tight-fisted and compassionless response to others in need in our world. It would really be the remedy to our unbelief. So as we consider that, as we wrestle with that in these rubber-meet-the-road hard questions, may God give us eyes to see. And just like the man who prayed for Jesus to heal his son, we get to cry out with that man, we believe and yet help our unbelief. So may God give us eyes to see, and in our own lives, and for the good of others, may we trust the loving provision of our Heavenly Father, and may we seek first the kingdom of God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, this exposes us in a way that we're not comfortable with, because we would rather give a little bit of our excesses and check the box, and consider ourselves to be merciful people. But your mercy, to be really people of your mercy in the world, requires that we see our unbelief that leads to anxiety, requires that we see how dependent we really are on you every single day for what we have, and we break up and blow up this illusion that we often create for ourselves that we are the reason that we have what we have. Blow that up in our minds, Lead us to functional belief in your provision and your love and your care for us. Help us in our unbelief. And then may our belief that leads to seeking first your kingdom turn us around, turn us outward with real generosity and real compassion and real mercy for the people in need in our world and in our neighborhoods. Lead us into that especially as we consider how to respond to refugees. Lead us into that as we begin Easter outreach together this year. We pray all that in your name. Amen.